If you don't have one, there's one in a seat in front of you, hopefully. And then stand, please. We're turning to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. It might be a little different than what you have. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6. Follow along with me. These are not simply words on a page. With these words, hang your salvation. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people... And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, see, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, we are the transgressors. We are the ones for whom this prophesied one died and bore our iniquity, bore our sin when he was perfectly blameless and innocent. What amazing realities. We can hardly comprehend. And eternity is, is too short to thank you for this. God, we worship you with our lives for what happened on the cross and for what was prophesied some 600 years before the cross, that Christ would be the bearer of our sins. Make intercession for for us, the transgressors. We praise you and we worship you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. And you may turn to Mark 15. I've titled the sermon, The Son of God. Your bulletin might say something different, but that was a miscommunication. The Son of God, and we are looking at the moment where Jesus dies on the cross. Normally I would have a PowerPoint to follow along, but I just didn't do it this week. 
due to other things, so I'm sorry. That means you should keep your Bible at the ready because we're going to be flipping around to different scriptures. Don't close that Bible. In the entire book of Mark, there has not been one instance of true and saving faith. There have been glimmers of faith, like the friends of the paralytic that expressed such faith that he was both forgiven and healed. There was the woman with the bleeding sickness that believed so much that she was healed. The Syrophoenician woman had faith to such a degree that her daughter was healed. So there are these glimmers of faith happening in the book of Mark. But in each one of these instances, it's about Jesus as a healer or Jesus as Messiah. True titles of Jesus, for sure, but not the complete picture of who he is. Jesus as healer, Jesus as Messiah, these are facets of the Son of God. These lead to little faith, small faith, baby faith, the beginnings of faith. It is not yet saving faith. Take, for example, Peter. We've talked a lot about Peter, and in Mark 8, 29, he confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the first one to do it, the first one to recognize Christ as the Messiah. And right after Peter confesses Jesus to be the chosen Messiah, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That's Mark 8.31. And Jesus teaches this right after he's confessed as the Messiah. And Peter doesn't like this idea. He doesn't like the idea of the Messiah suffering. And so he rebukes Jesus. To which we all know Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So it took faith for Peter to say that Jesus was the Messiah. But clearly his faith was flawed or was imperfect or incomplete. It was not yet saving faith. There's something massively significant missing in his understanding of who Jesus is, as it was for all of these people in the book of Mark. They didn't know yet who Jesus is. Because we come to that missing part today. And today, when that missing component is seen, is witnessed, we see the very first confession of true saving faith in the book of Mark from the most unlikely of sources. His mission and his identity are understood. So today I want you to see that only through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ can he be understood as the Son of God and your salvation. And so I'm going to unfold a lot of theological implications and truths that are happening on the cross. So maybe it's going to seem heady at times. I hope not too heady, but we're going to talk through some of this theology, and it's, this is just the tip of the iceberg today. 
Because what I want these truths to do in you is to induce worship. For your soul to exalt in your Savior who died on the cross on your behalf. The substitutionary atonement and double imputation that have happened on the cross are yours. Meaning that Jesus died and not you for sin. He became your sin, and you become his righteousness. Unbelievable. And so as we soak in these realities, I want us to, to lift our hearts and praise and worship for him. That's what, where we're going today. That's my intent. And it seems impossible for me to do this. So we're going to pray in a moment that God would do it. But first, let's read our scripture, Mark 15, verses 33 through 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw That in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. Father, these words, how can we understand them without your Spirit? Do what I cannot do. Show us the infinite, eternal worth of these words. If we've been saved for years or are not, may our hearts be filled with praise, wonder at what happened on the cross. Save us, Father. As we look to the cross and Jesus' sacrifice, help us, teach us to treasure this above all things. Let this great, horrific tragedy be our most valuable, precious joy. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, verse 25, we saw Jesus crucified in the third hour, around nine in the morning. At the opening of our passage, it's the sixth hour, it's noon. And suddenly, seemingly randomly, darkness falls over the land like a curtain and it hangs there for three hours. So by noon, Jesus is on the cross, three hours already, suffering in agony. So why the darkness? What's going on with the darkness? Why does God miraculously turn midday into midnight? I think there are two things going on. First, the darkness is ominous, a sign of judgment. It's like the judgment that that fell on Egypt 
the judgment of darkness before the first Passover. In Mark 13, 24, we looked at it a couple weeks ago, Jesus talks about Jerusalem and the sun being darkened over Jerusalem. He's talking about judgment coming on Jerusalem. But this time, judgment is not falling on a people, but on a person. On behalf of sinful people. It's a judgment that was prophesied long ago by the prophet Amos. And I'll read this for you. Amos 8, 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is a darkness of judgment. It is a darkness of wrath. What is happening in Jesus' soul as he is receiving the full wrath of God is being physically manifested with darkness. The spiritual reality is given a physical reality to mirror it, to parallel it. Now the second thing that's happening is not ominous. It's amazing that this darkness is signifying something incredible for every one of us because in the beginning, before God created anything, there was darkness. Darkness is symbolizing a new creation, a new beginning, the start of something fresh. Darkness precedes creation when all things will be made new in Christ Jesus. So turn to 2 Corinthians 4.6. I'm glad you already have your Bible open. So just flip to the right to 2 Corinthians 4.6. This is the creation beginning at the cross. 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let light shine out of darkness. Paul is talking about creation. And he's talking about creation happening in Christ. This light that's being created is the knowledge of God. And it's knowledge of God that's understood in the face of Jesus Christ. So God is revealing himself in and through Jesus' sufferings. And the cross is this beginning point. It starts the process of reconciliation. The process of dawning, or this is the dawning light through which you and I and the heavens and the earth will be made new, will be reconciled to God. The cross is the beginning. And so turn a little bit further to the right to Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
Christ is the plan for the fullness of time. Christ is the central uniting factor that brings everything into the perfect will of God so that the will of the Father is done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the moment that that new creation begins, the new heavens and the new earth begins the moment that God's wrath is spent in darkness on that cross on our Savior. So again, the darkness that makes midday into midnight signifies this judgment and wrath being poured out on Jesus Christ. And this darkness precedes the new creation. This touches it all off. The dawning of the light of the glory of God that will make all things new. So it's a terrible and it is a beautiful darkness. It's sorrowful and it's joyful. And you've got to say, what a strange plan. What a perfect plan that God the Son would die for our eternal joy. And the Father is so pleased with His Son's selflessness that He makes all things new. This is an amazing plan. This is unbelievable. So unbelievable, as we will see later, that this is complete foolishness to us Gentiles and folly or, and a stumbling block to the Jews. This doesn't make any earthly sense. But it is amazing when God gives you eyes to see it. The selflessness of the Son meant that Jesus endured the greatest wrath that the universe has ever or could ever see. And so we're going to camp on the next verse for a while where this dawning of our salvation begins in verse 34. So read it with me. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's 3 p.m. Jesus had been crucified on that cross for six hours in agony. I went into some of this agony last week, and I'll review a little, a little bit. Jesus' body would have been most at rest, be it a terrible agonizing rest, hanging from his wrists, his impaled wrists. And in this position, he could easily inhale and bring air into his lungs, but then his lungs maintained that expanded state, and it was nearly impossible to exhale. It was agony to breathe. He would have had to push up with his legs, his impaled legs, a little bit to let his lungs collapse so he could breathe out. But before long, his legs would have become exhausted and he would have fallen back onto his wrists. Six hours of this painful, pathetic, up and down, trying to breathe, 
transferring greater agony from wrists to feet, six hours enduring this physical torment. And he knows that his physical death is near. He can feel it now. And so the only way to get enough air to shout something out is to push up with his legs again. And he pushes up in the dark, exhausted now, and he forces out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. That's not the Greek. That's the Aramaic. That's the exact language that Jesus spoke. These are the exact words that he uttered. Mark gives us the translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, forsaken by God the Father. God is light. And for the past three hours, the light has retreated. The experience, this is the experience of darkness. As the land descends into darkness, Jesus descends into the very essence of hell the abandonment of God. This is a spiritual death. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. As Jesus is hanging on that cross, a miracle is happening. A horrible, unspeakable miracle is happening. Time begins to collapse on Jesus. He becomes the singularity. The eternity of wrath that's due for every one of us. Eternity of wrath is being poured out into these moments on the cross. Eternal wrath for many, infinitely compacted and folded in upon Jesus. Imagine the oceans of the earth being squeezed through a hypodermic needle. The infinite wrath of God being squeezed into Jesus, into these moments. So horrible, so awful and unfathomable, but that for a moment it seems unsustainable. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is no answer. There is no voice that returns with you are my beloved son. No one says with you I am well pleased. There is no dove that descends and reminds him that the spirit is with him, indwelling him. No angels to minister him to him. Even his disciples, if, there, if the few, there are a few of them that are there and they're completely silent and the rest have all abandoned him. There is no encouragement for Jesus in this moment. No Encouragement. There is only abandonment, forsaking. And all of this is because Jesus became the physical and spiritual embodiment of his people's sins. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you have not underlined this in your Bible, then you should. 
For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you feel the weight of eternity pivoting on that word for? For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin. He became sin. He's not just representing something. Somehow, miraculously, he's becoming sin. And he takes the eternal wrath that it is due. Our wrath, our shame, our abandonment, our death. He's taking it as a payment for our sin. And now, somehow and miraculously, his righteousness becomes ours. His goodness his holiness, his selflessness, his generosity, his perfection becomes yours. Your perfection. So that you and I can be in the unending and ever-increasing joy of the Father. We, can, we become the joy of God. Because in Him, in Christ... God is well pleased. And we are in Christ. I'm going to read the verse again. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's unbelievable. And it is yours 100% free forever. There is no payment required. It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. And that is the mystery and the beauty of the cross that for ages was hidden, but now we get to look into these mysteries and understand them. They're unfolded before us. We can see this treasure. Ah. You are a new creation in Christ. And to create you in this way, Jesus became your sin. Now, I want to be clear about something. In that moment that Jesus is becoming our sin, receiving the wrath of God, not at one point does he cease to be God. The Trinity is still the Trinity. Jesus still has eternal communion with Father and Spirit. The Father continues to love the Son even as he turns his back on him. The Spirit never leaves Jesus, but is indwelled Him now on the cross as it did and does at any other point in His life. And yet it is a horrific and real forsaking that is happening, somehow mysteriously, that is far beyond our understanding. Jesus is experiencing hell. So when he cries out, my God, my God, in that torment of hell, this is not a cry of despair. 
This is a cry of hope. Even in this moment, even when infinite, eternal wrath is being compressed into Jesus' present experience, Jesus knows that God his Father is mighty enough to to, to save him. In the garden, Jesus cries out, preparing for this moment. He cries out, Abba, Father, Dad. But on the cross, it's no longer Abba. It's El. God the Almighty. God the All-Holy, the All-Powerful. This is the God that Jesus is beseeching. This is the God that can save him. Only the Almighty is strong enough to overcome this physical, spiritual death. Only the Almighty, in only the Almighty, can he put this kind of hope. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. To look at the words that Jesus is crying out because he's quoting scripture from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you will, well, I'll I'll read Psalm 22 verses 1 and 2, but do not flip away from there. Psalm 22 verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Even with his precious few last breaths, agonizing as they are, Jesus quotes Scripture. He spends his last breaths on Scripture. And this Scripture sounds like it's Scripture of despair. But let's see what happens when we continue in chapter 22 of, of, Psalm, of the Psalms. So look at verses 24 and 27. Through 27. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted of the affliction, the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Amazing that Jesus, in where for you and I only despair could seemingly reign, in that moment he is full of hope, he is full of trust. He trusts in his Father to make these words from Psalm 22 come true for him. That all the families of the nations shall worship before God due to his affliction. It's a, the whole psalm is, is a psalm crying out to God that in affliction, God the Almighty will save. 
It's an unshakable hope that the Almighty will not only save, but then also glorify. And so as Jesus is dying on the cross, this is his heart. He's trusting his Father, and so the Trinity holds. Do you see that if Christ were to have despaired, it would have been a sin? Because he would not have been trusting in his Father. And the Trinity would have been broken and all of existence unraveled. But Christ does not despair. He hopes and he trusts. He has faith and the Trinity holds. And God is glorified. The Son has not failed. The Father's plan is realized. All of this and and much more happening in the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when those standing by hear Jesus say it, They have no clue. Look at verses 35 and 36. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. So the bystanders even are recognizing that Jesus is near his end, his death, as he's crying out these words. So they give him a drink. (laughs) But they do not care about Jesus. They don't know Jesus. What they offer uh, Jesus is a drink commonly known as posca. It's a stimulant given to soldiers so that they will stay awake, they will stay vigorous for battle. So they're just trying to keep Jesus alive a little bit longer so that they can see something amazing, hopefully. So here we are again, trying to get something from Jesus, trying to see if Elijah will really indeed appear from heaven. Even as Jesus is dying, they're still trying to take from him, still trying to get something from him, trying to see a miracle, trying to see a sign, trying to be amazed. It just got dark in the middle of the day, and they want a sign. It will never be enough. No miracle will ever be enough. And there are preachers today who base faith off of healings. Like if there's going to be healings happening up here on this stage or out on the street, then suddenly people are going to come to faith. But it doesn't ever work in the Bible like that. No healing, no miracle, no sign is enough to produce faith in somebody. There's something else, another component. But at this point, for them to get their sign, it seems that Jesus is a little too far gone anyway. They're not going to get to see Elijah. Look at verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Jesus knowing he's a moment from death again and agonizingly pushes up his legs. And we know from John 19.30, he cries out, It is finished. And in that moment, I picture his legs going limp and he falls dead on his wrists. God's wrath had been spent. The eternal hurricane of wrath for our sins compressed into those three hours of hellish torment for Jesus. And he pushes up and says, It is finished! And as a sign of that completion, the wrath being spent, the temple curtain is torn in two. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So in the temple, we saw a picture last week, it overshadowed Jesus. He was looking up at the temple from where he was crucified, most likely. And the curtain in that temple was torn in two. So there was a curtain, a great and beautiful curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everybody else. Nobody could go in there, nobody could see it, except one time a year the high priest could enter to make atonement for the sins of the people. But he had to be perfectly cleansed to do that. And if he had not gone through those rituals perfectly, the moment he passed through the curtain, he was dead. Even had a rope around his foot so that in case he died, they could pull his body out. And this is the curtain that is torn. Because in the Holy of Holies, it was believed that the very presence of God dwelt on earth. And it's torn. It is rent in two. God is no longer hidden. God is no longer unapproachable. The veil of the law has been removed. Yahweh, at the death of Jesus Christ, invites His people in to the Holy of Holies. And He comes out of the Holy of Holies. Turn to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verses 19, I'm going to skip around a little bit, 19, 22, and 23. Hebrews 10 is towards the back of the Bible. So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, let's go to verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. (laughs) 
The temple is torn in two, and God says, enter, come into the Holy of Holies with confidence, with boldness, come, because of the blood of the Lamb that has sprinkled you clean. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain. So if you believe that, that Jesus Christ is this way into the Holy of Holies for you, that he has made God approachable, then these words should be your greatest treasure. You can approach God with confidence, not shamefully, not timidly, not wondering if he's okay with you being there, not with any sense of guilt or condemnation. No, approach God with freedom and with confidence. With full assurance, you belong there if you belong to Christ. The shame of your sin, the condemnation that you deserve, the wrath that was due is spent, is gone. There's no more left for you. You are made anew. You are the righteousness of God. Amen. So you can approach the throne of God with confidence. And do you know what that means? Romans 8.16 tells us, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You have become a son or a daughter of God. Mm. You become a son or a daughter of God. And I love my daughters. And I don't want there to be anything that would keep them from me. And I am afraid a little bit of those years when they're teenagers and there might be things. But I love my daughters with my whole life. And God loves you if you are his son or daughter. He loves you like that times infinity, right? Like, I can't even compare with my love for my daughters. God loves you as his son or his daughter in the same way that he loves his son, Jesus Christ. And all of this somehow and miraculously is understood at the moment that Jesus dies. Maybe a little more limited than what I just walked through, but something is understood because in this moment that Christ breathes his last, saving faith is born. Faith is born at Christ's death. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that, he, that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was a son of God. In the book of Mark, there is no greater revelation of Jesus than the son of God. And in fact, that's how Mark starts this book out. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And it has take fif- taken 15 chapters for any human to utter this in faith. 
humanity cannot understand Jesus as the Son of God, that He is our salvation until He suffers, until He dies. Without that, Jesus is a healer. He's a good teacher. He's maybe some kind of victorious Messiah. But Jesus can only be known through his suffering and his death. Look again at at verse 39. When the centurion saw the way in which he breathed his last, the manner in which he died, He was silent when they mocked him, when they falsely accused him. He was silent in the face of terrible shame, excruciating agony. And so something in this weak, pathetic, shameful death reveals the greatest realities of eternity and our God, the identity of Christ and his mission. And this understanding comes from the most unlikely of sources. This is an unclean Gentile. This is an enemy of God who is responsible for Jesus' execution. Although he was responsible. You know, I'll come back. No Roman, no Jew would have looked at Jesus' death, the way in which he died, and thought, surely this is the Son of God, not by any human means. This is this shameful kind of death would have proven to them that this man is cursed by God. Clearly he's not divine because look at this horrific way in which he is dying. So this Roman centurion would have thought this to be completely foolish. So turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. This is why these verses were written. Why in part? 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 and 23. For the Jews demand signs. We saw that when they wanted to see Elijah. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This nonsense happening on the cross was absolute foolishness to the Gentile world. The Roman would have thought this man is cursed. So there is not a place in his entire pantheon of gods for some shamed, dying, suffering God. There's no place. Jesus doesn't fit. Only God gives eyes to see what the centurion saw. And so look at the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This man, this centurion, was called. God opened his eyes, and he saw in the suffering and the agony and the the shame, power and wisdom. God opened his eyes as he stood at the foot of the cross and watched him move up and down, trying to breathe. And in that moment of darkness, light shone in his heart. He was made anew. He understood Jesus as the Son of God. So today, if you believe in this or if you do not believe in this, hear these words. You 
like the centurion, are an enemy of God. He may have been responsible for the nails, but you are responsible for holding him there through your sins. Look how he died. Look at his suffering. Look at his shame. See the darkness. See the wrath that he endured for your sake. Look and believe. He did this for you and it is finished. Now come to him with your life to trust in Jesus with your eternal soul that you would be hidden in Christ, that you would be Christ's, that you would become his righteousness. You are his. I'm going to read this one for you. Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is where you lived. That was your kingdom. And Christ has set you free. There is therefore now no condemnation. Hallelujah. So whether you, what I just said, whether you've heard that a million times or for the first time, it does not matter. This is the greatest treasure in the universe. There is nothing more than this. Nothing even conceivable more than this. Jesus faced the wrath you deserve. He gives you his perfect righteousness. He makes you new. He makes you a son or a daughter. He makes the infinitely powerful and holy God as approachable as a loving father. He lovingly endured this cross for your joy. So I want you to tell me, challenge me, what worldly comforts can you offer that will compare to this? What securities are better than this? What riches or fame is better than what we have just read? All the riches of the earth pale in comparison to this good news and this horror on the cross, this joy born in darkness. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 9 says, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. If the word of the cross is offensive or if it is foolish, then I beg you, gaze upon that cross. Look again. This cross is the intersection of the divine and the human, of God and humanity. The cross is the only hope of salvation. So look and see and cry out that God would give you eyes to see Jesus, the Son of God. For those of you who do believe, when the things of this world begin to entice, when temptation comes, look at the cross and see the penalty of your sins and repent. 
When challenges seem to overwhelm you, when the darkness seems to be crushing in on you, then look at the cross and Jesus who bore far more than you can even imagine. And when your joy seems to have been stolen stolen away, again, cast your eyes upon the cross and ask God to restore in you the joy of your salvation. What a God that we have, who he himself, by his own blood, took upon our sin and our shame. And he planned this in advance. He planned this before he laid the foundations of the world. What a God to take his enemies and make them his children. Oh, eternity is hardly long enough to worship this all-wise, this almighty, this all-powerful, loving God and the Son of God who worked it on our behalf. Let's pray. Spirit, breathe and create life as we look at the cross and see your Son knowing an agony that is incomprehensible and unspeakable. Breathe life into us. Breathe it fresh in us. Fill our hearts with joy. You have done the impossible. Only you could have done this. You have killed death. You have killed sin. And you have made what was dead alive. God, let us count all things as rubbish that might try to compete with with Christ in our lives. Change our hearts, O God. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And God, we worship you for this plan, for your will, for enacting it in Jesus Christ and revealing to us these eternal mysteries and joys in the face of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. We praise you in his name and in his name we trust. Jesus Christ. Forever let it be. Amen.